Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. In the United States, in the Caribbean, and here in Canada, people are picking up the shattered, scattered pieces of their lives and homes. Hurricanes and storms have laid waste to so many communities. The first instinct is to rebuild and fast. But today we'll hear why that's not always the best answer because of climate change. And take note, insurance companies, you need to be part of the solution, according to our guest. Binding the future to their ancient past is crucial to two young Indigenous people who are taking up the challenge of confronting the effects of climate change. And hey, we know it can get pretty heavy on the show from time to time, but we also know the value of a good laugh. So stay tuned for climate change comedy. And did you hear the one about the... Well, no, sorry. You're just going to have to wait for it. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. There's been lots of coverage about the fallout from Fiona, about houses washed away, families left homeless, and coastlines reshaped by the storm's force. But we really wanted to check in with Stan Peach. We first talked to Stan this spring. He was worried about his family's home. It was built in 1910, and it overlooks the ocean on Cape Breton Island. Stan's mother, 92-year-old Joyce Peach, still lives there. The house was at risk back then due to erosion on the coastline. And we've reached him to find out what happened in the wake of Fiona. Stan Peach, hello. Hey, how you doing? I'm all right. How are you doing? Oh, we're doing okay, I guess, considering what we've been through the past uh, few days. Tell me what you've been through the past few days. Well, I mean, uh, uh, there's still, we're, we're down here in Glace Bay. I'm about 15 minutes away from where my mum lives, and uh, she's right on the coast there. I'm a little further inland, but she lost uh, a portion of her roof and her chimney, and there's no power over there. There's no power still down this area, a lot of, a lot of areas still without power. There's lineups at the garages trying to get gas, and uh, big shortage on gas, and shortage on power to pump gas. It's been a Quite an ordeal the past few days. I'm so sorry to hear that. Where is your mom now? My mom is with my brother over in Port Morion. He has a generator down there at his house. So he's got my mom and my sister both down there. And he had my brother and his wife that was visiting from Slave Lake. Yeah. Tell me that your mother didn't ride out the storm in her house. Oh, goodness, no, no, no. <laughs> She's... Oh, you know what? If, if we'd have let her, she probably would have. But uh, God knows, knows, she can be stubborn when she wants to. But I mean, right now, it's uh, there's quite a bit of damage there. And whether we're going to be able to salvage or not, it's, uh, it's another thing. As a matter of fact, I am waiting now. And just a fair warning that if I don't get a call, I'm waiting on a contractor that's supposed to look at the roof over there for me. And uh, this is just somebody that I know personally who's going to take a quick look at it as a favor to me. And uh, 
it's been raining here most of the day, so I'm afraid that water is getting in there now and doing more damage as we speak. So I'm so sorry, but okay, I get it. If he calls, you hang up on me and take that call. I I want you to do that. That's more important. Um, but, oh yeah, for for sure. So the sure. other other big concern, obviously, with the house is how close it was to the ocean. Is it any closer now? There is a little bit of more of the bank gone. Uh, how much more? I I can't really say. I did. It wasn't my uh, concern when I was over there. The house was more of a concern to me, and we we were gathering up some stuff. She had a picnic table in the backyard there that just blew. Oh my God! A couple hundred feet, I guess, and come bent down and just smashed into a million pieces. And uh, you know, uh, uh, sadly enough, her insurance company. The cooperators uh, back in June decided that uh, it was a risk to have her as a client, I guess, and cancel her insurance. Uh, they told her that her oil tank was too cl- close to a water source, which just happened to be the Atlantic Ocean, you know. And their fix, as far as they were concerned, was to put it in the basement. Well, there is no basement of the house. There's a five-foot cellar hole, so... How you were going to get an oil tank into a five-foot center hole, it just wasn't possible. So they canceled her insurance on her the 30th of July, June. Mm. Oil tank coverage is an add-on to your insurance, and I asked them just to cancel that part of her insurance and leave the rest of her insurance, but they said, no, that wasn't possible. You know, and I think they were just looking for a way to... to, to uh, get rid of her because of the risk that was there, I guess, and uh, they were this was their way around it. Can you understand why they did that from their point of view? No, I don't, because like I say, oil tank coverage is, a, is an add-on to your policy. I have it here. Like if, if you have a spillage in oil, it's pretty expensive to clean up, and I understand that, so uh, I have it added on to my policy. But if, if I didn't have it handed on, I would be the one responsible for the cleanup here, right? right. So why they couldn't just uh, continue insuring her property, you know, and, and not have coverage for the oil is beyond me. You're in a desperately difficult situation, though, now, because there's, as you said, there's damage to the house. There's no insurance. What's the plan? Oh, well, you know what? There's at least probably $10,000 in damage there. Uh, and, and and that's getting worse as we speak because if water is getting inside there now, then the you know the ceilings are starting to get wet, and uh, that's probably you know going to be the add to the the cost. But uh, uh, just a rough estimate from a couple of people contractors I was talking to to fix the chimney and the and the roof, you know, would be at least ten thousand dollars. And God love her, you know. I told her that, and she's like, you know what? I have money in the bank. I have $16,000 in the bank, and if I have to spend that to fix it, I'm guessing that's her life savings. You know, she's prepared to do that to get back into her home. But I'm I'm having my doubts as each hour goes by and water is getting in there that she's going to be able to afford this. Now the province is offering coverage you know, to help people, uh, you know, that if you have uh, uh, uninsured damage that they might help be able to help you with. Uh, again, uh, who knows when you'll ever see any of that back, if you do see it back. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. It's a sad situation to be in, but it's a situation we find ourselves in. And uh, 
let's just say she's doing a lot of crying. Oh, Stan, I'm so sorry to hear that. This is heartbreaking for you, too, I bet. Yeah, yeah. Not easy to see her like that. Oh, I'm sure. You just think about that. And I know you're trying to help her. What What do you think would be the best thing to do right now for her? Well, the, the best thing for her would be to try to get her into a senior citizen's complex, which I've been trying to do for five years now, <laughs> you know, but this is her home since 1963. My dad's father built that house in 1910. So, I mean, it's it, the house has been there a long time, but again, and ironically enough, uh, the roof blew off, the chimney blew off, and the oil tank's right where it was, you know, the day before the hurricane. The one thing the you insurance know. company refused to, to touch, that's still there. Yeah, still there. Yeah, never oh. moved an inch. Oh, Stan. Never moved an inch. Oh, Stan. I, I, I'm so sorry for everything that you and your mom and your family's going through. I, I'm just going to wish you nothing but the best going forward, and, and maybe we'll check in with you uh, in a little while and see how you're doing. Sure. F- yeah, feel free to call anytime, and uh, if there's anything to update, uh, I think I might have your contact information here, and if uh, if we are able to get any repairs done, I'll, I'll, I'll send you off a message and a couple of pictures, maybe. Thank you, Stan. You take care. Okay, thanks for the call. That is such a difficult situation for them, and Stan was so generous with his time in, in spite of the obvious challenges that, that he was facing with his mother, with the house, with the family, trying to figure out what is going on next, whether he can get it repaired, how much it's going to cost, and how much they're going to pay for it. Now, I knew I'd be talking to someone who's got some expertise on these things, so I thought I'd get his advice for the Peach family. Hi, I'm Glenn McGovery. I'm Managing Director of the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction at Western University. McGilvery has his eye on the increasingly intense natural hazards in Canada that cross paths with our communities, including post-tropical storm Fiona, and what they might mean for people like Stan and Joyce Peach. So what do you make of their situation? First of all, my heart goes out to her. That's a horrible, horrible situation. I think a lot of people aren't going to be able to rebuild on site because of erosion. I've seen some incredible shots of video over the last few days where it's just the the power of the ocean is quite amazing. Uh, I would seriously consider a relocation. And I know how tough that is to to have to, to deal with. These are lives. People have been there for decades, a lifetime. But sometimes uh, the decision is kind of made for them. And I think strategic relocation is kind of sometimes the only option. That cliffside will just keep eroding and eroding and eroding. And it's dangerous for her. It's dangerous for her life. It's dangerous for her home and belongings. And unfortunately, that may be the only option, particularly now that she can't get insurance anymore. Now, with regard to Stan Peach's complaints about the company that cancelled the insurance on his mother's home in June, we reached out to Cooperators Insurance. It sent us a written statement that says, in part, while we are unable to comment on this individual case, we can say that we follow the industry standards for oil tanks. Guidelines such as age, location, condition, and maintenance of the tank are all important considerations to prevent costly and potentially catastrophic property, and environmental damage because of spills to soil and water. Glenn McGilvery says Stan Peach's mother is not alone. 
I really suspect that we're going to have a fairly high degree of, of non-insurance this time around. Because of the nature of the homes, uh, some of them are very old, historic, kind of shanty-type homes, just kind of sitting on rocks, not really fastened down properly, not built to any code. Probably uh, an insurance company probably wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. We're going to be seeing a lot of that. McGilvery is also thinking about what's happening next. He believes that rebuilding in the wake of a disaster like Fiona is a chance to keep people and the places they live in safe from future storms or other climate change-linked hazards. Then what did you make of the damage in eastern Canada? Well, the damage is, is quite extensive, of course. Um, places like Cape Breton Island and, and parts of Newfoundland, Labrador, Prince Edward Island got hit quite hard. Uh, where the landfall was in, in Cape Breton around uh, the Canso Peninsula there, damage was very extensive because wind speeds were very high. You also had rough seas and heavy rains as well. So very extensive damage, but uh, we were kind of fortunate in the case that uh, large cities like Halifax were not totally spared, but they certainly weren't hit direct on. So this could have been a lot worse. There's obviously a lot of trauma for people to recover from, and we're hearing that from them. And there's obviously a lot of physical damage to clean up. But I'm wondering, what opportunity is there for communities as they rebuild? Uh, you know, it's sad to say uh, our hearts go out to, to these people. Um, but this does give us a, a golden opportunity to put things back better than they were before. This is not the first time that this uh, area has been hit by uh, a hurricane or a tropical storm. It won't be the last time. But the science indicates that these storms will get worse and worse and more common, more powerful. And so it just doesn't make sense to put things back the way they were. We should put things back better. We have that knowledge. We know what to do. We just really have to get on with it. Okay, well, let, let's talk about what that exactly means. Your organization works with communities as they rebuild from disasters. Are you going to be reaching out to any of those municipalities in Atlantic Canada to see if they could use the help? I mean, I think about Port of Basque, which was just devastated. Right, and that's exactly the plan. Uh, we recently launched a program called Resilience and Recovery, where we will work with communities that were badly hit by uh, natural hazards and Make sure that when they recover, they do so in a better way so that they could either prevent or mitigate the impacts of future events. So we're working with Lytton, BC, which was almost completely wiped out by wildfire last year. We're working with Calgary, Alberta, after the huge June 2020 hailstorm. And we're working with Barrie, Ontario, after the tornado that they experienced last year. On things like changing building code and, and awareness programs and things of that nature. So our plan is to reach out to uh, the mayor of Porto Basque offer up our assistance under this program and see how we can help. Let, let's take those examples that you just cited one by one. You, you look at how homes can be rebuilt to make them safer in the face of extreme wind, hail, wildfire, flooding. You listed Lytton. So exactly what are you trying to do to help Lytton? So we've been working with Village Council there on a bylaw, which would require the reconstruction there to be wildfire-resistant construction. Uh, so there is uh, the National Research Council about a year ago published a Wildland Urban Interface Fire Guide. That guidebook kind of gives us uh, a good roadmap on how to reconstruct buildings so that they're wildfire resilient. And uh, through that and through also the FireSmart program, we're looking at a bylaw that would require the homes to be put back, not the way they were, but to be ready for the next possible wildfire that may strike that community. And Calgary? Calgary got hit with a tremendous hailstorm in June 2020. It was by far the costliest hailstorm in Canadian history. It cost insurance companies about $1.4, $1.5 billion. 
lot of people in the Ward 5 area, the upper, the northeast corner of the city were hit quite hard. We worked with Calgary on a few things. One was on a, an awareness program. So we launched Hail Smart to educate people about how they can protect their homes and their vehicles and businesses against hail. But we're also working with Calgary to uh, press the Alberta government to change building code to make it a requirement that all roofs in new construction have a class four uh, roofing product on it. That's a high impact or impact resilient roofing uh, product that would uh, prevent a great deal of damage from hailstorms, would uh, prevent a whole lot of grief for people and would prevent a whole lot of roofing materials from having to go into landfill. Calgary's not able to change the building code on its own. It has to work with the province. And finally, Barrie, Ontario. So Barrie got hit with that tornado um, over a year ago. I think some homes are still not quite a whole yet. Uh, we're working with Barrie on also awareness programs to educate the people of Barrie about uh, tornado risk. It's the second time in, in many years that they've been hit by a tornado. Uh, but also, similar to Calgary, we're helping Barry push the Ontario government to make certain wind resilience features a requirement in all new construction, so things like hurricane straps, and a few other things that we're, we're pushing to, uh, to have in, in the Ontario code. So lots of discussion about building codes and, um, and, and municipalities and provinces getting involved, but you're also in talks behind the scenes with insurance companies about these ideas, which sounds really interesting. How much buy-in do you get when you make the suggestion that insurance companies should actually pay to climate-proof homes? A couple of years ago, uh, short years ago, the response wasn't great. But we're finding that that mood and the response has changed quite dramatically in just that short period of time. There's a lot of work and a lot of planning that has to go into this, but we've struck a working group with about, I think, 14 insurance companies on it. And some are, are, many of them actually are, are, are plotting ahead with a build back better type of plan that can come in primarily one of two ways. They can either uh, create a brand new product where the homeowner would pay a slightly larger premium. And if they were to have a damaged or destroyed home, they would get one back that was built better than code. That's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is just that insurance companies can, uh, quote unquote, eat the cost of these um, modifications. And in many cases, they're very inexpensive. But we have companies that are looking at both ways. It's going to take some time, but uh, we are getting there. And uh, I think the response is a lot better now than it was just a year or two ago. Are you at the stage where you can tell us the name of any of those insurance companies in case listeners want to take out a policy with them? We are not at that stage yet. Um, it's, I wouldn't say it's early days. We're somewhere in the middle. But we're not quite at that point yet. Well, we'll keep track of that then. But so, so who sure. who is footing the bill right now? Then, if someone loses a home or there's damage from something that is climate related, who who pays if you want to build back better? If you want to build back better, that is uh, pretty much entirely up to um, the homeowner uh, to to foot those costs. Now, uh, there are small examples of insurance companies giving. Um, their clients' money to improve things. Uh, for example, many insurance companies will give you $1,000 or $1,500 or sometimes even more uh, if you've had a basement flood, a sewer backup, and they will, of course, clean everything up. And then they'll give you an extra 1000 or 1500 to put mitigation in. A lot of companies have done that. There are a couple of other little examples, but for the most part, uh, if you want to put things back better than the code, the homeowner normally has to pick up that tab. I fail to understand why an insurance company wouldn't want to do that because the consequence of not doing it is that they, they face bigger and bigger payouts, don't they? Well, that's true. Um, 
it's kind of a balancing act. One of the things that we hear is that insurance companies are concerned about investing a lot of money in a given home when that client could just leave the company after that and go to another company. And of course, one of the remedies to that is if if the whole industry did it, then that wouldn't matter as much, right? Right. And and it's just cost as well. So, you know, if you think about it, if you're paying $1,000 for your homeowner insurance or $1,200 for your homeowner insurance, putting 5000 into that home or 10000 into that home is several years of premium. And sometimes the math, you know, may not quite work out. So we're working through these things. But going back to my first idea there, we're hoping that if enough insurance companies do this, then that retention issue won't be a problem. Now, it does cost a lot of money to rebuild, and and there's more frequent destruction of homes and communities from all of those uh, extreme weather, storms, wildfire, flooding. How often are insurance companies saying, that's enough, we we just can't keep covering all of these repairs? Well, you know, I have to say that that has been an issue for decades, and it's not a new thing in Canada. There have been, you know, situations where companies have become aware of, you know, areas in cities, certain areas in cities that get a lot of sewer backup, for example, and that's been problematic. I I remember these discussions happening 30 years ago. Um, It's happening probably a bit more and more, and it's going to happen still still more as climate change continues to bite in and as our communities get larger and, and risk is more concentrated. You know, one of the areas is is, is floodplains and high-risk flood areas, another area Another area to be concerned with is wildfire risk areas. And as we become aware of those areas better, as technology improves, as mapping and and hazard modeling improves and things like that, I think it's going to become more evident that certain homes are really, really in in harm's way and that um, it may be difficult to insure them going forward. Right now, we're not in a crisis period. Uh, The insurance industry is working quite well in Canada. It's a healthy industry. But there are always going to be examples of where you know certain homeowners are having problems getting certain coverages. Right. I was wondering, is there ever a time in a community where, where you just simply have to say, no, you can't build here again? Yeah. Uh, and, and we tried this in, in Fort McMurray after the wildfire in 2016. A little bit after that, there was a flood event. And some insurance companies said, listen, you know, normally we require that you rebuild in this on the same property, the same lot. But in this case, we'll make an exception and we will honor the claim even if the homeowner moves to a, another lot. And, and nobody really took them up on that offer, believe it or not. So mm. uh, there are examples of that happening. But um, I think we're going to see more and more where insurance companies kind of waive that whole idea that you have to, you must rebuild on the same lot. I think there's there's probably going to be more companies that are open to the idea of uh, helping to relocate uh, people in harm's way. If we can come back to Fiona for a moment, I'm wondering what happens to the people who are living in Fiona's path, whose homes or apartments aren't covered by insurance. That's where um, the, the province of Nova Scotia would step in with uh, disaster assistance. Or Newfoundland, I guess. Yeah. And Newfoundland and Prince Edward Island. Yeah. So it would all be the provinces at a provincial level. Um, those provinces can then go to the federal government through the disaster financial assistance arrangements and get some money back. But homeowners can't go directly to the federal government. Only the provinces can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing costs for disaster uh, assistance, provincial and federal, going way up over the years. It's just like insurance in the sense that to these payouts are getting more and more frequent and higher and higher. So that and, suggests that, know, that government also has to be involved in the, in the resiliency of the, of the buildings as well. Absolutely. Um, it, it's costing them, i.e. you and I as taxpayers, uh, an increasing amount of money every year. 
And that's an important point. This whole idea that governments pay, it's, it's you and I that are paying for this stuff, right? So, you know, you and I are paying for sometimes somebody's river view that goes bad or somebody's nice cabin in the woods somewhere. You and I have been talking about building codes and, and payouts and insurance companies. But at the end of the day, what we're talking about are people's homes, livelihoods, neighborhoods. I'm wondering why this work matters to you. Yeah, you know, my boss always says it's not work that we do when, when you are incentivized to help people uh, and to make our society safer. It doesn't seem like work. And uh, some days I'll have to argue with them on that. Uh, we're very busy these days. And unfortunately, when we're busy, it means there's a lot of grief out there. We've gained a huge reputation in the Canadian disaster risk reduction field. And we're just going to plot ahead. We're, we're making some headway. We're going to make more. That's what kind of keeps us going. I guess you're one of those people who would would prefer to be put out of business. <laughs> I joke, uh, I joke, and say that all the time. Uh, so in a couple of weeks, we're uh, going to celebrate our 25th anniversary, and I say we would have liked to have put ourselves out of business years ago. It just wasn't in the cards. Uh, we don't control everything. If we controlled the discourse out there and, and the action, then we would have put ourselves out of business. But we're not quite there yet. Um, but maybe the next 25 will be out of business. Glenn McGilvery, thank you very much. Thank you. And if you want to learn more about the threat of stronger storms and rising sea levels in Atlantic Canada, you can listen back to a show we did in April of this year. Just look for the episode called Life on the Edge on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. This past week, the Assembly of First Nations held its second annual climate gathering. People from Indigenous communities across the country came together in Fredericton, New Brunswick, to talk about everything from clean energy projects to flooding in First Nations communities to engaging young people in climate action. I reached two of those young people in the midst of the event. Hello, Buju Kenoeya. My name is Tia Kennedy. My spirit name is the Golden Eagle Woman. I'm of the Wolf Clan, and I come from Walpole Island First Nation, known as Bakishkwanan. Um, and I also come from another community, so I carry both Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe teachings. My other community is Oneida Nation of the Thames, and my pronouns are she and her. Bojo Kenawea. Hilary McGregor and Dejaganashin knows when. Waskinaga Donjaba, Trano Dinda, Makwa Dodem, Gichananda, Gibjaya Mampinonga, Igatria Kinan Wendaganak, Panagibin, Ashnabem Wat. So I'm Hilary McGregor. I'm from Whitefish River First Nation. 
but I live in Toronto as well. I am Bear Clan, and uh, I just said that I was happy to be here today to have this discussion. And I also thanked all those who held on to the Anishinaabemwin language so that I might share it and learn it now. Thank you, both of you. Um, let's talk about the gathering that you've been at. Tia, tell me about what the highlights have been at the climate gathering for you. Um, I think it's really nice being with like-minded people, being with community, and being able to have those really meaningful and deep conversations where you don't necessarily have to over-explain the importance of Indigenous knowledge within the climate space because they already get it. And I think, too, you don't necessarily have to describe the impacts of climate change um, so in-depth with other folks because they're experiencing it as well. As marginalized communities and as Indigenous peoples, we're often the ones that see the climate crisis firsthand in front of our eyes, where other people might not see the impacts. For them, it's just talk. For us, it's a reality. And Hillary, what, what stood out for you at the climate gathering? Yeah, I would just expand on, on what Tia was, was touching on with, with the like-minded people feeling the support. The other part of it for me is seeing the young people sort of sprinkled throughout the gathering. There's a few groups of us, a group of youth from the Yukon Territory, as well as from Saskatchewan. And it's nice to meet those people. I know at the session yesterday, the group from Saskatchewan, for a lot of them, it was their first or second time public speaking in a, in a forum like this. So it's always exciting and nice to meet those people. And you, you two, you were actually speaking at the conference too. You worked together to make a video. You spoke about it at the conference. Here, let's listen to a little bit of that video right now. Our relationship to the land is the greatest relationship of all. Mother Earth is our one true teacher. From the very moment when a child takes its first steps on the grass, when we play outside and are covered in dirt, when we feel the cool fresh air running across our chubby cheeks and the sun beaming at us radiating love, when we touch the water for the first time and splash the medicine at our friends, she teaches us every single day from our very first steps here on earth. And it becomes very difficult to watch our mother brutalized, abused and mistreated. Nothing we can say or do will stop the violence, but we must try. Now, Tia, that, that was obviously very heartfelt on your part. I could hear it. What message are you hoping to send to other young Indigenous people with that video? Yeah, I think in that message, um, I had a lot of eco-anxiety that I was experiencing during that time. But listening back to the video, Dionovan and Hillary also share a lot of wisdom about resiliency. And I think as Indigenous youth, we have the power to create change uh, for the future that we want. This is our future that everyone's talking about. And so we need to have a voice in how we want our future to go. And yeah, and I guess I just the message that I want to share to Indigenous youth is that, you know, this is our time to step up and have the courage to say what we need to say, be vulnerable about our experiences, be honest and open and have the courage to share because we didn't necessarily think this was going to take us to New Brunswick, but um, we developed something really meaningful and great as friends and now yeah, we're presenting our video and sharing our truth. So just keep going and you'll get there. I'm sorry you, that you've experienced eco-anxiety. Did, did getting involved in this help with that? 
Oh, for sure. Yeah. Being able to come together with like-minded friends. It's been such an awesome experience. They've taught me so much uh, being with them, even just on this trip too, us finally coming together in person. We uh, created the video during the pandemic and we had to pivot where we all just met online virtually. And so it's been an awesome experience um, just to hang out with these guys and you know, share and learn from each other. Hillary, your part of the video was focused on language, and you've recently started studying the Ojibwe language called Anishinaabe Moin, if I'm saying that correctly. What connections do you see between that language and climate change? Yeah, so there's quite a few. I think inherently within any language, you get an idea of the culture and the worldview of the people. For Indigenous people, Anishinaabek in particular, the land is incredibly important. It's how we survive. It's all the, the positive things that we get from life comes from the land. It's where our identity comes from. It's where our purpose comes from. It's where our laws come from. It's also where the language comes from. In many ways, the language reflects the land or the territory that we come from. And so with that in mind, you can learn a lot about you know strategies for uh, how we can integrate into creation or our territory as well. Um, just by, you know, listening to the language, listening to stories in the language. One example is within the, the our word for deer, which is washgesh. That's meant to sort of imitate the motion of the deer running through the woods. Um, it's sort of like a up and down wave-like mo- motion. And so um, the way we, we pronounce the word for deer is supposed to have that sort of wave to it with like the wah wah and then the shkesh is kind of like at the end of how a deer runs it kind of will dart into the trees or into the bushes another is the concept of resiliency so that's one that i've really tried to dive into um, especially thinking about how we're going to mitigate and adapt to the climate crisis one description of resiliency that i heard from a man on manitoulin island from wikwemakong actually he described it as a combination of mshkauzuin, which is our concept of strength, and oadzuin, which is our concept or word for knowledge, and it's a combination of them. So it's shkauadzuin uh, is our word for resiliency, and so resiliency has to do with, I think, mobilizing and acting on our knowledge, and it takes a lot of courage and strength to do that sometimes. And so just by going into the language, you can start to derive some strategies for addressing climate or climate crisis. That's really interesting, yeah. Um, Tia, you're actually quite new to climate action. What drew you into the climate movement? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, I've been saying that climate action found me. (laughs) I think it has to do though with um, my ancestors. My great-great-grandmother was a medicine woman, but I remember um, talking to my mom and trying to figure out, you know, what that means to be a medicine woman. And it has to do with, you know, that relationship that you have with our plant relatives and being able to communicate with them. And and so I spent more time outside after my mom told me that um, and spent more time trying to figure out what my relationship is to the plant relatives. And then through that, um, I started learning that, you know, as humans, we've been given this voice and this consciousness to make the right decision. Um, And we haven't been making those right decisions. And so I felt as somebody that understood that, 
I have now a role and responsibility to play within this ecosystem and um, advocate for our plants and our animal relatives that cannot advocate for themselves because my ancestors thought about me every day. They were thinking about me and the de- during the decisions that they were making. And, and that's why we're still around. That's why we have the things that we do. And so for my future generations, I would like them to have a, a home, a place to live. I would like them to have access to uh, medicines. And so what can I do today to ensure that future for them? Hillary, how do you think your own work with language and culture could help shift climate policy in the future? There's a couple of ways. I think one, just in general, better understanding of the Indigenous languages, you know, within Canada, for example, will provide new perspectives, more in-depth, comprehensive perspectives of A, what the problem is, and then B, what some solutions might be for a couple of reasons. One is Indigenous people in Canada and across North America are experienced in facing their destruction. The history of genocide and loss within our communities is pretty well documented. And so we have a lot of strategies that have been passed down from generation to generation in the language that I think can be applied to the crisis that everybody is facing now. And then the second part, the work that I do with other young people is more community-focused, community-based, based in you know, the idea of the transfer of knowledge and traditional practices onto future generations and then thinking about the kind of future that we want to have for ourselves. And so I think, you know, from the ground up is where I like to be in terms of changing policy, because often at the high level, climate policy or policy in general that comes from the top down often doesn't account for grassroots approaches or in this context, uh, Indigenous worldview. You to are the future. There's a lot riding on everything that you do, along with other young Indigenous people around the world. Do you see that as a burden or an opportunity? It depends on the day, to be honest with you. Um, (laughs) That is very honest. (laughs) Sometimes, for sure, it can get very overwhelming when you feel like the perspectives or worldview of your nation haven't necessarily been heard. But at the same time, it can also be really inspiring to see the opportunities and the good work that have been going on at the grassroots level among peers. You know, youth-led initiatives really excite me. That's what keeps me going because it's very easy to sort of, you know, get overwhelmed and, and get very cynical and take sort of a doomsday approach to things. And I don't think that's healthy. Tia? Um, I totally agree with Hillary that it's definitely easy to get overwhelmed and sometimes get wrapped in eco-anxiety and the sort of doomsday mentality. But I think if anyone's going to get it done, it's definitely our generation. (laughs) We're so innovative and we're so creative. And specifically us Indigenous youth, you know, we have this genetic memory of resiliency from our ancestors. And, you know, even though we're a generation of worried adolescents, um, we're also really great at taking action. And so even coming together for peer-to-peer mentorship, and we're all in kind of like really different spaces, but being able to come together, it is really inspiring. And that's what keeps me hopeful. And you are getting on another plane in a few weeks. In November, you're going as a delegate to the International Climate Conference, COP27 in Egypt. Why did you want to go? Yeah, that's 
I'll be heading there and I'm really looking forward to it. I guess the reason why I wanted to go was because last year I saw the uprising of Indigenous peoples globally that attended. I saw that their group has been getting bigger and bigger. And I just that was something I wanted to be a part of, especially considering that, you know, environmental racism is so real. And there's this movement for land back and land back um, talks a lot about, you know, taking our, our rightful place as uh, stewards of this land and, and giving back the decision making power to the people that have the longest standing relationship with Mother Earth. If I can be a part of that and support other Indigenous peoples and see what they're doing across the globe, I think that's really incredible uh, opportunity to be a part of that. Well, I wish you safe travels there. Um, and uh, I wanted to thank you both for taking the time to talk with me, Hillary McGregor, Tia Kennedy. Thank you. Miigwech. Miigwech. You know the saying, laughter is the best medicine, but is it also a good prescription for facing up to climate change? Max Boykoff and Beth Osnes think so. They're both professors from the University of Colorado Boulder, and they ask their students to develop comedy sketches about climate change. Why? They think humor has the power to bridge the gap between divisive opinions. Here's Boykoff. We have to be very creative in terms of thinking of ways that we can interact productively with others. And so it may not start with climate change. In fact, there are other pathways to enter into these conversations. And so in terms of meeting people where they are, we really start with audience and think about and discuss ways in which we can produce messaging and have conversations with them in ways that's meaningful and ways that's productive. Students have the chance to perform their sketches at a comedy show, testing their new material on a live audience. The reason that a vegan diet reduces your carbon footprint so much is because all this methane comes from cows, like cow farts. But if any of you have ever tried a vegan diet, <laughs> kind of feels like you're just passing the buck, you know what I mean? <laughs> Like I'm just walking around like crop testing for our children's future. I mean, not our children's future. I don't have kids because I care about the environment. The host of the event is stand-up comedian Chuck Nice. You may know Chuck as a co-host to astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson on Star Talk. It's a podcast that bridges the intersection between science, pop culture, and comedy. And Chuck joins me now. Hi, Chuck. Hey, hey, how are you? Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. I'm, I'm wondering, many of our listeners would say that climate change is no laughing matter, but here you are using comedy to talk about it. What is funny about climate change? All of comedy stems from tragedy, because without that conflict, you don't have the requisite tension necessary to create a laugh. Much of laughter comes from misdirection. Um, th that being said, uh, I am also sadistic. <laughs> so if I may get kind of geeky and science-y, there have been several studies done that when you encounter emotions while you are learning, you retain what you are learning much better. So if I elicit the uh, chemical response that comes along with laughter, 
if I induce that while I'm giving you information, you're more likely to accept the information. And from a personal standpoint, what I've also seen is that it's very cool the way comedy disarms people. Often as a comedian, you will broach a subject that makes people very uncomfortable, but they laugh first and then they moan, which by the way is my favorite response from an audience <laughs> is because I'm like, it's too late. I got you. I, I heard you laugh. So it's too late. Your moans mean nothing now because you have already betrayed your truest feeling, which was, hey, that was funny. But what happened was you moaned because you thought about it. So that's how you know comedy gets people thinking. Now, you partner with Max and Beth on the climate comedy competition. I'm wondering how you bring your experience into it. Well, for me, since I'm not a part of the competition, which, by the way, hurts because I am extremely competitive, what better way to compete than when you know you're going to win? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I had to say that. Um, so everything from writing to formulation of the concepts that will become the jokes uh, to perfecting the jokes to uh, working on delivery, to workshopping the jokes, which we all do together. So that's kind of the process. And uh, it's a lot of fun. You know, it's a lot. It's also, it, it also allows you to be um, dangerous and safe at the same time, yeah. which, is a, which is a great place to be. Chuck, I just uh, get, get a little more, little more serious for a second. According to a study done by Yale University and George Mason University, uh, less, yes. than, less than 40% of people are discussing, even discussing global warming and climate change. Correct. Why do you think that is? Here's the reason why I think that's happening. We have allowed people who benefit from burning fossil fuels to politicize this issue. This is a scientific issue. It is not a political issue. It does not make a difference who is in office, whether it's a Democrat, Republican, a communist or socialist or otherwise a dictator. The climate crisis will be what it will be. And so once you politicize science, it makes it difficult to talk about. Because now it's like, well, I don't want to talk about this because now I have to talk about, you know, my other political views. And what our goal is, part of the comedy, is to diffuse that so that you're not talking politics. You are indeed talking science, like you found uh, an article in Scientific American about a, a new metallurgic property for something that may change space travel. Nobody goes to a cocktail party and goes, oh, God, can you believe that guy can, <laughs> talking about space travel that way? Nobody does that. So that's what we have to do with climate. There's a quote by an English poet and playwright, Christopher Fry, comedy is an escape, not from the truth, but from despair, a narrow escape into faith. How does climate comedy translate into solutions and hope? Fantastic question. Yes. The number one thing that we can do about this issue is to talk about it. And issues that are not discussed become issues that, that affect us negatively. So I call climate the toothache of our time. So if you've ever had a toothache, what happens is it's like, oh, that feels weird. Oh. And then a week later, you're like, oh, there's a little bit of pain, but I can deal with it. I'll take an aspirin. And then like two weeks later, you're like, oh my God, that really hurts. I should see a dentist. 
And then two weeks after that, you wake up and the half of your face is swollen and now you have to have emergency surgery. And so the talking about it is the preventive dentistry that stops the toothache from becoming half of your face looking like, you know, Quasimodo. (laughs) There's a difference, though. I mean, I want to go and see a climate comedy show. I do not want to go to the dentist. (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> oh, man, who knows? Maybe your dentist would be really funny. I mean, that, you know, maybe maybe that's my next uh, conquest. Maybe that's it. Is to make dentistry funny. But yeah, um, you know, we had a show where top to bottom, all climate, all climate, all comedy, and only one third of the audience knew that they were going to a climate comedy show, which I was thrilled about because afterwards I can't tell you the number of people who came up to me afterwards and they were like, yo, this was great. I really learned something. Hey, do you have any information on how I can, is there an organization I can join? And and we did. And so it was just phenomenal. People, I call it um, the climate noise. There's a lot of climate noise and there's a lot of disaster porn. I call it disaster porn because it's what you see in the news. It's the flood, the drought, the fire, the storm, the hurricane. But what they never do is they never tell you, oh, by the way, this is because we're burning fossil fuels. That's the number one cause of, of what we're going through. That's they, they don't make that association. Why? Because they feel as though that's political. Why? Because the people who burn fossil fuels made it political. Okay. That's number one. The second thing they don't do is uh, tell you about mitigation. But you do hear about resilience. Isn't it funny how we hear about resilience, but not mitigation? Why? Because resilience means, uh, you know, commerce. Whereas mitigation means the restricting of commerce. And so greed is a big part of uh, the climate discussion. It's curious. I'm going to gently just gently push back at you on that, because I do think that conversation is changing a bit. um, And it may be more so here in Canada than in the United States. But I do see a lot more media coverage actually making that explicit link and talking about that. Have you noticed a shift in that over over time? Yes, I have. I agree with you, um, and I accept your pushback. It is much better than it was, um, but when you're climbing out of a hole, uh, the fact that you're only 10 feet underground as opposed to 30 feet underground is not the kind of progress that you would tout as successful. Okay. Um, What advice would you give to somebody who wants to venture into climate comedy? One, speak to a therapist because there is something <laughs> wrong with you. <laughs> no, um, listen, I think it's a, a great thing for anyone to do. It may be a tough haul because you're starting off in comedy <laughs> with a very, very heavy subject. I, I would say start with comedy first and then find a way to add uh, climate to your material. Um, But what I would say to everyone, no matter who you are, that there is a way and a place for you in this solution. This is a solution that is, one, all hands, two, all of humanity, and three, global. And those are all, that sounds redundant, but it's not, because it's very much contingent upon where you are in the world. And where we are in the world gives us, one, more responsibility because we have more power. And the only way that we can make this issue move forward the way it should is by pressing 
a two-pronged approach, which is our political leaders uh, making them do the right thing and our leaders of industry making them do the right thing. And then the third thing we can do, honestly, is vote with your dollars, you know. Right. Put your put your money, so to speak, where your put, mouth is. That's it. Put your money where your mouth is or where your motives are. I just want to ask you about something Max Boykoff said. He, he stressed the importance of meeting people where they are. What does that mean to you? One, climate is an issue that affects everyone in some way. So the first thing I say is don't talk to people in New York about polar bears because they don't care. I mean, honestly, there is you get on the subway at five o'clock in New York City. Not one person is thinking about a polar bear. OK, mm-hmm. but um, they may be thinking about environmental justice. They may be thinking about energy cost. They may be thinking about jobs. All of these things are related to climate. Um, Meet people where they are in terms of the issue, number one. Number two, meet people where they are in terms of what they are willing to talk about, which is what makes comedy so great. Everybody is willing to laugh. So if you can get them laughing, the conversation has started. And so that's why I think comedy is so important. But uh, without comedy, then find out what it is that interests someone. Okay, Chuck, can you do me a favor? Yeah. Okay. Can you tell me your favorite climate change joke? Oh! (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. It's one I wrote. Sometimes people can seem self-righteous when they are championing the cause of climate change. Like whenever I see a grown man in a suit with a briefcase in New York City on a skateboard, (laughs) I'm like, is that really an eco-conscious climate warrior or just some dude with 12 DUIs? (laughs) Good line, Chuck. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Chuck, thank you. Thank you so much for giving us both a lot to think about and a laugh because we all need a laugh. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, Chuck, that was just terrific. Thank you. Great joke. Uh, Great joke. Well, thanks. Yeah, yeah. That's that's uh, one of the later ones that I've written. So I'm glad I had a chance to. I'm glad you laughed because that yeah, would have been awkward. That would have been very awkward. <laughs> yeah, and then I would have been like, oh, did I write that? I meant Jerry Steinfeld wrote that. <laughs> It's always good to end the show on a smile and a laugh. We don't do that often enough. That is all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producer Danielle Piper, producers Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, and me. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. If you've got a good climate change joke, send it on in. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.